So you know when you are doing laundry and you toss you you you, you toss your blanket into the washer, right? And you dry, and you whatever wash it, and you throw it in the dryer. Well, blankets they take longer, right? And so you take it out once the dry cycle's done, but it's still not completely dry. It's still moist. Summer is like wrapping yourself in that moist blanket, and, and it's and it's just wet and uncomfortable and it's terrible. So summer in Missouri is a uh, is a blanket that needs to be thrown in the dryer for about another half hour. A hot wet blanket. It's it's a hot wet blanket. <laughs> uh, One hundred percent of that was uncomfortable. And welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. Hey, we're battling like peasants today. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach, could not be with us, because at the time of recording, he's actually traveling to GP Vegas. Dana, you will be very sorely missed for this episode. That's what he says. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All of these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. We have another guest on today, so ladies and gents, please welcome the man who always has money for beers because he specializes in ultra-budget brews, Andrew Cummings. Uh, how's it going? Andrew, it's so nice to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I feel like Dana must be one of the bourgeois. We were, we uh, chased him away in our uh, peasant revolt, since we're going to be talking about all these budget things. And as Matt mentioned, it's peasant week. <laughs> so let's get to know you a little bit, maybe some of the decks that you like to play. What oh, kind sure. of decks are you building nowadays? Oh man, um, I I mean I'm somebody who is continuously tinkering and uh, building all kinds of new decks, um, budget or otherwise. Um, most recently, I have been playing a lot of uh, I built a Curses deck around uh, Mathis Fiendseeker. Um, it's you know just play all of the Mardu curses and lots of politics and those sort of things. It's uh, it's pretty fun. It's not necessarily good, but uh, it's a good time. I also have been, I, I just retooled my Brea deck. Um, I had it kind of as your average Brea, do combo things, you know, value. And I uh, replaced all those good cards with EDH All-Stars like uh, Prime Blade and, uh, you know, Pitiless Plunder and other other treasure cards. So it is now a, uh, a treasure deck. So that's, that probably tells you a lot about the, the kind of things that I play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty good time. <laughs> De- definitely. So, Matt, you and Andrew actually know each other in person. Have you had the fortune, or perhaps the misfortune, of playing against his decks? The last time Andrew and I played together, actually, he played his Curses deck, and I was playing my uh, Edgar Markov deck with, you know, I was sitting on two lands, and he led a conspiracy to make sure I never drew a third land the entire game. Um, politics. It's politics. <laughs> yeah. I, ca- I cast a land tax... But I didn't get to untap with it because he got the entire table to uh, gang pile on me. And uh, yeah, I didn't get to do a whole lot. So the politics, 
Andrew loves. On the other hand, I I despise so much. You're you're bad at it. It's okay. It's okay. Because I play you're good decks. You're doing it right, Andrew. I, I play good decks, and everybody's like, oh, oh, Matt's playing a good card. No. It was turn, like, six, and I had two lands. And all I wanted to do was draw a third. Well, I can always appreciate a guest who gives Matt a hard time, so you've got a thumbs up in my book, Andrew. Perfect. So let's Glad talk you. a little bit about your article series, The Ultra Budget Brews. This might sound like a silly question, but we can start off with a, uh, a pretty easy throw. What inspired the article series? Um, well, actually, what inspired it, um, my playgroup, we were talking about ways to limit ourselves in building our decks. Our, our playgroup had kind of turned into a little bit of an arms race, uh, which is fine. It can be fun. And it's, it's one of those things that is enjoyable to an extent, but after a while, it can get a little difficult with finances and um, you just kind of start seeing the same things over and over again. And it just, it kind of gets out of control. And so we wanted to find a way to uh, enjoy, to, to build something different. And so we, one of the ways we looked at doing that was having a budget restriction because that you know, limits the cards you can play. And so we had thrown around the idea of just, just arbitrarily having it as a dollar. And so we all kind of picked somebody uh, picked a commander and started building. I actually built the deck. I don't know. I don't know how many other people actually ended up building it. Uh, I think one other guy built that and ended up building the deck. But I ended up building it and just then Matt started writing for EDHREC and I was like, you know what? This could actually be kind of a fun thing. It was. It, I enjoyed building the deck and brewing the deck, and it was just different than other things that I had done. And so I thought, hey, if I, if I enjoy this and I think that you know other people might enjoy it, and I thought it was an interesting angle. And so I started writing the articles, got accepted. That's on. awesome. Yeah. So you mentioned that you had imposed like a, a budget limit or something like that, but uh -huh. your article series is called the Ultra Budget Brews. Yes. What's your metric for a budget deck versus an ultra budget deck? Sure. It's just that every card has to be under a dollar. Budget is one of those things when you start throwing around the idea of budget when you're talking about magic, especially, it's it just varies so much from person to person. Uh, I know people who can spend, you know, hundreds of dollars on a deck, you know, in a month and it's completely okay. You know, when I when I very first started out, you know, I had like, you know, 15 bucks a month, if that, you know, to be able to spend on magic cards, you know. And so my budget was vastly different, you know, than other people's budget and that's okay. And so just having it, like, I feel like, a dollar is about as cheap as you can really get. If you can keep every card under a dollar, then you're probably building a pretty cheap deck. So Nice, nice. And that's definitely true. That's something that I've noticed with you know a handful of my friends or meeting random people in shops. Someone's budget might be a dollar per card, but someone else's budget might be like, oh yeah, a $5 card is totally budget for me. So it's nice to give a restriction there to help to make sure that you can you know, talk about the cards that maybe are seeing a little less play than they should that are perfectly good, but just happen to not be worth a whole lot of money. Yeah, and it's kind of one of those other things. It's also just, you know, I know it's something that, I think it's Mark Rosewater, he says, there's a whole idea of restrictions breeding creativity. And it's something I completely agree. It's, it's you, you have to be more creative when you give yourself those restrictions. It might end up leading to, you know, sometimes less powerful, but it's also less homogenized i don't know if i'm saying that correctly uh just you know less sameness in your decks and you get to do something you know different you're not just playing eternal witness and elish norn and 
sad robot and you know xyz cards that seems to be in like you know every deck and so it it, it, it just it's more it's it's a lot of fun you know it's I, I really enjoy it i like it a lot so andrew getting to your article series a little bit too just kind of building off that um what ultra budget decks have you built so far what have you written your your articles on gosh i've actually written quite a few i've probably got 20 or so at this point i think i'm not entirely sure I, i'd have to go back and count but some of my favorite ones i guess i've built one of my favorite ones was a Daxos of Miletus. He's the the blue-white Daxos. I built it as a lantern control deck, which for uh, if you if you don't play any modern, it's it's possibly the most miserable deck to play against. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in modern, it's not necessarily good anymore. I don't know. I don't follow modern as much, but uh, basically the whole idea is to control the top of everybody's libraries. And with Daxos, when he does combat damage to somebody, he can whoever he does combat damage to. He can essentially steal that card off the library and cast it, you know, using mana as any color, and uh, and so you get because you can see every tops of tops of everybody's library, you can kind of pick who you want to, who you want to attack, and whose stuff you want to steal, and you also have some things that uh, help you ma- manipulate the top of uh, the other players' libraries. So I, I thought that one was kind of fun. That was actually one I broke my one rule. Um, I had one card in there under I mean, over a dollar, and that's actually a Lantern of Insight because modern players made it expensive, which makes me a sad panda. But you know what are you gonna do? Yeah. Um, oh gosh, what are some other good ones? Kirkesh I built as kind of a mono red life gain deck, which is different because mono red isn't good at gaining life. But basically, it's did a lot of artifact shenanigans and Aetherflux Reservoir and just you know. Kirkesh doubles everything your artifacts do, and you can do some really, really, really cool, fun things with it. Uh, I also built a Hirobi Death's Whale. I actually played that one a little bit online some, and uh, it, it's hilarious. It's one of the, it, it plays just cards that you've just never even heard of. Uh, Hirobi's Death Whale, he uh, makes it where whenever you target a creature with any kind of ability or spell, it just gets destroyed. And so I was playing little artifacts, you know, that you can tap it and give target creature banding or, you know, target, <laughs> make, make target creature a wall or, you know, all, all kinds of random stuff like this. And all these, these cards that should just be terrible. They're, you don't see that play in anything. They're, they're awful. But uh, in that deck, you know, they work perfectly. They, they're just wonderful. And they all cost like a nickel. Like, it's great. <laughs> yeah, man. That's really cool. You mentioned also uh, some, like, all those cards that you've never heard of because you're, I mean, in a way, sort of scraping for the bottom of the barrel to find cards that are good enough in this multiplayer environment that aren't super expensive. One of my favorite of your articles was about Asmira Holy Avenger, a green-white 2-3 oh, yeah. with flying that gets plus one counters for every creature that was put into your graveyard from play that turn. I I had a ton of fun reading that one because you named it the Cannon Fodder Club. And so you were making this deck that killed its own creatures to power up a, a pseudo-Voltron commander. It was just really creative. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate that. Thanks, man. No, I actually, that was that was one of the ones I really struggled with writing for a couple reasons. It's green-white, and I... And it's like, the best. It, it's, oh, I'm, I, I, I just, I can't build green-white. I just, I never have had a green-white deck... I'm just, it's not my strong suit. It's not what I enjoy playing. It was actually, that was a really fun deck to build. But the other part with that was, because you want to sacrifice your own stuff. And one of the most expensive thing, man, just like free sack outlets. 
they are all all over a dollar it seems like and so scraping the bottom of the barrel is exactly what you're doing because you know the stuff that you normally would play in astronauts altars or altar of dementia you know things like that you just can't play because it's too expensive and uh, so yeah, that was that was a that was a difficult one to write, uh, but it was it ended up I thought it ended up pretty fun. So I'm glad you liked it though. Well, I'm glad you finally enjoyed brewing green white. It took you long enough. It was it was fun. It was fun. It's not my red blue or anything with black, but you know whatever. It's fine. It's well, good. we we have you on record saying you you like green white, so we'll move on. Uh, <laughs> next edit, question. Edit, just edit that. <laughs> no, Matt doesn't have a color bias preference at all. No, no, not at all. God, he plays boring colors. It's so sad. No, it's okay that I just I like all my value. That's that's sure. all I like. Uh-huh. Um, so do you do you in your experience? Do you have you know ever feel like super budget decks like you build? Do you think they ever get outclassed by more expensive decks? Like, are there ever cards that you know you feel people are buying wins with or or how does that work out in your experience i i, I feel like i sh- i should say no i never feel outclassed but that would that would be that'd be dishonest um there are times you do there's some decks that you can minimize how much you feel outclassed but i mean the cards that are really expensive typically it's for a reason um it's because they're really really good and they can do things um that your more budgety cards sometimes can't Sometimes you can find replacements. You know, you look at a card like, oh goodness, Force of Will. Yeah, it's awesome. It, you know, you pitch it, and it's not even that great in EDH, or, but it's still you know seventy dollars and is a great card. But you know, I can run Counterspell, and Counterspell is like, you know, fifty cents. You know, and it does sort of the same thing. But there are some cards like you know I was talking about the free stack outlets. You know, that you, there aren't a lot of good, you know, replacements for those things, and so you have to just kind of make do. That's not to say that you don't have a chance of winning. You do. It's just you're going to have less speed and less consistency, I think, are the, probably the two things you're typically sacrificing um, when you're playing budget. You, you're missing the speed of, the, of a lot of those early game, that early game acceleration, and you're missing pretty much all tutors. You're not getting a lot of tutors, and the tutors that you do get you know, are, are pretty expensive and not very good, and so... At least some more varied gameplay, which is kind of nice because you're not tutoring for everything and getting the same, you know, two or three cards every every single game. But at the same time, you're not getting the same two or three cards in every game that are really, really powerful. So, yeah, you can feel a little bit out, out outclassed. Um, but, yeah, I mean, because there are so many cards that can win the game. You look at a Shivan Dragon. I mean, a Shivan Dragon can get you there. It's not pretty. It's not, you know, going to be... Uh, so it's, it's not going to be the most exciting thing you maybe. Well, I guess maybe that would actually be pretty exciting, uh, winning with a shipping dragon, you know. <laughs> so maybe maybe that's a bad example. A colossal dreadmaw. Well, that's exciting too. You're winning with a common, um, but you, you you get the idea. Like finding things that are um, that you can win with that are just like big and can get you there and can get you the victory. That's not the difficult part. There are lots of those that are are, are cheap and you know don't cost you uh, much money. But it's the stuff that gets you to the point where you are casting those things and you are getting to use those things. And, and that's another thing that I enjoy so much about your articles in particular is that it's just a reminder to people that a wallet does not win you games. Yeah, 100%. It doesn't. Like, there are lots of ways that you can you can get around. Like, I mean, just, just I, I play with, um, I actually, I work at a school in, this, in the area where I live and uh, I run a magic club after school for a bunch of high schoolers. It's really fun. It's great. 
most of them, you know, they, they get like, you know, a pack or two, you know, every six months for like Christmas or their birthday or whatever. But they can still, every once in a while, they'll come in and just stomp my face. I'm like, I write for an EDH website. I've played Magic for, you know, more years than they've, you know, been born. And uh, I'm still getting my face kicked in by, you know, like I said, Shiv and Dragon. Like that, like Sarah Angel is just, you know, bringing the beats and I can't do anything about it, you know? And that can happen. And that's, you know, that's just part of Magic. And that, that that's part of the fun of Magic. If you're able to just to buy a victory every time, you know, that'd be really boring for everybody involved, including the person that, uh, you know, has all the money, probably. <laughs> well, don't, don't tell that to the competitive EDH crowd. Oh, that's fine. I, I mean, I, I've played against some people who run kind of competitive, like uh, my brother, he runs like a blood pod deck, which apparently is like a competitive EDH thing. And just the other day, I beat him by like putting a prying blade on a Brea and just going to town and eventually getting enough treasures to win with Revel and Riches, you know, and that was his, you know, competitive deck. And it's like, oh, yeah, it, it can get there sometimes. It's kind of fun. Yeah. And it's more exciting when it does happen, I think. You you appreciate it more. Yeah, just being in the same play group as, as you for so long. And yeah, Garrett had his, his it was back when he had Carador and it was the Hermit Druid combo. You know, we, we bashed our big, you know, overpowered decks together. And like, sure, it was fun every now and then, but like, I, I could do maybe like two games like that. Then I was like, okay, let's let's change it up. Let's let's have fun now. So yeah, I definitely understand the... Uh, the same experience over and over again, just because of the, the tutoring and all that. So that lines up with my experience as well. I've got a handful of decks that I've had for years, ever since I started playing the game. I've got my Mimeoplasm deck, which is totally my baby. I'm never getting rid of it. I've got so much money in that deck. But then I also went out of my way to make a, a deck full of much cheaper cards with a Kaneos and Tiro group hug strategy, where yeah. all of the cards were specifically designed to look completely non-threatening to people until it turns out mm -hmm. that they are. So it doesn't matter necessarily that you're, I mean, sure, expensive and powerful cards can be helpful, but they're not the end-all be-all, and it's just good to remind people of that. 100%, yeah, I completely, yeah, you, there, there's so many ways you can just win, you know, just for, with cards that, yeah, it's cost a nickel. God, Kinesa Tiro, I love this deck. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we can talk about group hugs since Dane is not here, because I have a Kinesa Tiro deck. It's like, oh, I just, I love it so much. <laughs> no, we got to save that topic for a future show where he's <laughs> definitely on, because we got to, the rage. <laughs> yep, we definitely got to aggravate him for it. That's fair. So, anyway. real quick, do you have a favorite budget card? Oh man, uh, I yeah, I have a, I have some, definitely have some favorite budget cards. Actually, I actually have a couple. Of, like, I'll, I'll just name one in each color if that's complete. If that's okay with you, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So my favorite overall, probably budget card of all time, is Gather Specimens. I don't know if you do. You guys know what Jesus. that card does. Yeah, <laughs> only I because, do know what it does. Yeah, only because you've blown me out with it a few times. So I'm yeah. excited to hear these stories. Oh, they're great. So, gather specimens. It reads. Should have it completely memorized, but it's it's been a, it's been a little bit. Here, I I got I got yeah. it here for you. Okay, can you pull? Can you read it? So, Thanks, yeah. So, gather specimens is a blue instant for three and three blue. So six six cost spell. Uh, it's an instant, and it reads, if a creature would enter the battlefield under opponent's control this turn, it enters the battlefield under your control instead. And for the budget-minded folks, it is 72 cents. Yes, it is. It, on Card Kingdom right now, you can you go to EDH Rec and you can click on the little thing, and it's like 79 cents. It's wonderful. I mean, obviously, just like the level one thing that you do with this 
is somebody is casting um I don't Rafik know. of the Avenger Many, of Zendikar. Rafik of the Many, sure, whatever. <laughs> and not and they that cast was for personal experience at all. <laughs> that, that is personal experience. And then you cast gather spe- gather specimens in response, and then all of a sudden that Rafik of the Many is is yours, and then you just get to beat the opponent in with their own creature. Right. And so then the fun part about this is like you're playing this little you know card that costs less than a the, the, less than a pop. And you get to steal your opponent's Elish Norns and their Grave Titans and their Kozileks and all these things. And you get to just, you get to turn, turn it around on them and like, how does it feel? And just crush them. And it's, oh, it's wonderful. You know, so that's just a level one of it. You can obviously you can steal their commanders. And so they can't really get the commanders back. If somebody attempts to Rise of the Dark Realms or Living Death, all, you, you let, you just cast it in response and then you get all of the creatures. Ooh. If your if your rise the rise of the redeemed tokens opponent is, is feeling a little froggy, you know, and has you know a hundred tokens and taps him to you know make two hundred, you get those two hundred tokens. It's I would just there. There's so many things you can do with this card. It's probably like I said, I think it's my favorite. It's my favorite one, uh, probably of all time. It's so fun. All so, right. So what about some of the other colors? Yeah, some of the other colors. Let's see. In red, I love reverberate. Reverberate is it's two red and it just re, it just reads just copy target spell, I believe is I believe is exactly how it reads. Instant or sorcery. In, excuse me, yeah, instant or sorcery, not spell. Yeah, instant or sorcery, and so you copy your own things with it. So maybe you're casting a giant comet storm and you want to cast two of them. Uh, maybe you are somebody is ramping and you are playing mono red and you can't ramp, so you. You copy their Kodama's Reach or their Boundless Realms or whatever. Uh, somebody is, you know, playing Narset and wanting to take all the turns, and you copy their Expropriate or their Time Stretch. And uh, there's just all kinds of cool things that you can do with it. I really like. I couldn't decide with black. Uh, Victimize is awesome. Victimize lets you sacrifice a creature uh, for uh, one black and two colorless, and you get two creatures from the graveyard back. So you just train. You're trading one creature for two, which is pretty great. And I also love Read the Bones, which is just, I think, just one of the best black draw spells. It, it's just it's just great. It, you scry two, draw two, and lose two life for three mana. It's awesome. In green, Nature's Claim is just it's just a it's just such a solid card. You're gonna run into all kinds of artifacts and enchantments that are incredibly powerful. And it's an instant, it costs you one green mana. And you have somebody gain four life, which is, is fine. Yeah, it, it's they have four life to begin with. Four isn't that much more typically. Very rarely is it going to be a huge downside. I guess if you really wanted to get a little crazy, you could run Tainted Remedy or something and make them lose four life if you're real worried about it. That sounds like that sounds like my <laughs> kind of magic. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's just a great card. In white, Source of Plowshares. I how this card is under a dollar. It's under it's under a dollar because they reprinted it into powder, but it's still. It's still just a dollar. It's just it's just one of the best white cards you can have. Pretty much any white deck is going to be better better off with a Swords to Plowshares in it. It just is. And and I know I'm kind of I'm I'm talking about a lot of answer cards at this point because you're not going to be as a budget player. You're in a hard time keeping up with other players' haymakers, and so being able to answer their haymakers in some ways it's just very important. That's kind of what I found. And so for colorless. See, honestly, when I when I sit down to write 
any article, pretty much the two of the first cards I put in there are Commander's Sphere and Felwar Stone. They're just, they're good, cheap ramp. Uh, Felwar Stone is, is great. It's too colorless, and you just tap for you know, any color that an opponent controls, or a, 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 an opponent can make. And so, if you know, in your normal game of EDH, you have three opponents, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be able to make most of the colors that you're needing. And Commander Sphere being able to tap for any color and be able to sack it and draw cards uh, in a pinch is is just it's great. It's very good value, and they both are under a dollar. It's great. Those are all definitely excellent picks. As Matt mentioned, he's been blown up by some of those, and honestly, so have I. So <laughs> that's really awesome. I'm particularly you mentioned Rise of the Dark Realms and then casting Gather Specimens. I'm a necromancer. Rise of the Dark Realms is like one of my signature spells. That and Living Death. So I'm a little afraid to play against you. <laughs> it's oh gosh, it it's so fun because the the player has just a smug look on their face, like I'm about to win the game, <laughs> and. And you just cast. I mean, granted, like you're a blue mage, and you have you're holding six mana up, so they should expect something, I suppose. But you know, sometimes they don't. So you mentioned something in uh, when you were describing all of those cards as well. You mentioned that as a player on a budget, one of the things that you need to be most aware of is other people's haymakers, and and that's a really good tip, you know, for people that may not know what to expect when building a budget deck. I'm kind of curious if you have any other tips for some brewers on a budget are there other you know special types of tricks that you like to use yeah definitely um one of the things that i think is really important is with just with brewing in general is just understanding your deck's weaknesses uh, i think it's more important for a budget builder because you're not going to be able to like play all those super powerful cards and just kind of power your way through not completely understanding what your deck's weaknesses is for example i my the very first i think ever I guess, ultra-budget deck I ever built, um, was a Borderigmos Enraged deck. And its whole thing was it just, you threw lands at your opponents and you killed them. And it was it was, it was this kind of convoluted combo deck. It used, oh gosh, it used all those the crappy ramp spells that nobody really wants. They're not really even ramp spells. They just, they get lands from your library into your hand. And, you know, typically when you're playing, you don't want them into your hand. You want them onto the battlefield, you know. But in this deck, this was you know, the exact opposite. You'd want them in your hand because you can throw these lands at your opponents for three three at a time. So, But the, the deck's weakness was if it got killed once or twice, you're you're in a rough spot. And so, because Borbergmos costs eight mana. And so that's, that's a lot for any deck, even a green deck. And so I had to build knowing that once it had been played against once or twice that, you know, people were probably going to gun for him and because they would see he was pretty dangerous and he was going to eat every path to exile, every healer's downfall, every all of that sort of thing. And so I had to build answers to be able to continue to play him because he was my only real win condition. And so, um, you know, things like Swiftly Boots and Withstand Death, you know, it's a card that just like, you know, a one mana instant that gives target creature indestructible, you know, things like that. And so... Understanding your deck's weaknesses, I think, is really, really important. Politicking well can cover over a uh, multitude of issues. If you can politic well, you can really... Can, it can save your bacon, uh, just to be completely honest. Just make everybody do your dirty work, why don't you? Yeah, make everybody... Hey, if you can make everybody do your dirty work, that's one less answer that you have to get you have to spend. That's one less answer that somebody has to use against you. You can... And it's honestly, as a budget player, it's 
easier to do that because typically people at the table, especially if it's your play group, they know, you know, you have the cheap cards. You're the one building, building on a budget while, you know, Chad over there, you know, has his blinged out, blinged out, you know, attracts a deck or whatever. And they, they know he has money, so they know he's probably going to have all of the crazy cards. So it's not going to be too difficult to use a little bit of persuasion, a little bit of a manipulation sounds bad, but just persuasion and to persuade everybody to be like, Hey, he's the threat. I am not the threat. I'm sitting over here casting Gruel Guild Gates and Darksteel Ingots. You know, he's playing Mana Crypt and whatever. You know, that's, that's so politicking can, can really help out a lot. Honestly, two and two other things that aren't gameplay related as much. The first off is to trade. That's how I've been able to, like, I, like I said before, I, I kind of mentioned, like, I don't have a ton of money. And so, you know, I, I don't have unlimited magic money. And so the way I've been able to get most of my decks that aren't budget is just by trading. And I know it's one of those things that, you know, people say trading is dead uh, at the local game store or, or whatever. But honestly, if it's, it's not. People just don't want to uh, initiate those conversations. Sometimes that can be kind of uncomfortable. I found that Pretty much anywhere I've gone, and it's not just in my local LGS, it's pretty much any any shop I've visited, if I am willing to initiate that, people typically are completely willing to trade and are interested in doing it. And so uh, that's been super helpful for me, and I'm able to find the cards that I'm looking for. And the other thing is, if you're playing on a budget, uh, you, don't have a, you probably don't have much money to begin with. Um, so don't buy packs unless you have a real good reason to, like buy singles. That was probably the one of the hardest lessons I had to learn as a Magic player because buying packs is fun and you know you might get that lottery ticket, but you'll be able to stretch your money as a budget player a lot farther if you just buy the actual cards you're wanting as opposed to buying buying a lottery ticket. I don't know. What is it? No, that? that's excellent. I like all of that advice. That really lines up with my experience as well. So thank you for stating it so well. I think you did it a lot better than I would have been able to articulate. Well, I appreciate it, Alex. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for reinforcing Joey's Joey's thought process on all that. So hey, you clearly your thought process is different. Obviously, right? I I have nothing else to offer. I just wanted to <laughs> say thanks for building up Joey because hey, yeah. yeah, the entire podcast exists just so that I can have other people reinforce my pre-held dispositions. Absolutely, <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> uh, so and so Andrew, in in your deck building process, I know this answer a little bit. At least, at least I think I do. Um, so if you have just X budget, is there a certain part of the deck building process that you focus on first for those more expensive cards? How do you prioritize where the, the money in the deck goes mm-hmm. and where, where to, uh, to, to be a little more budget friendly with? I guess that even kind of goes back to kind of what I was talking about earlier. Uh, the two places I would look to park to, if I'm actually looking to spend a little bit of money, if I'm trying to upgrade my deck a little bit, were in the consistency and the speed. Probably the first place is uh, the land, and that's boring, mm-hmm. it's annoying, but honestly, it doesn't even necessarily mean that you're going out and buying shock lands and fetch lands. Like, that's not necessary, even. It can just be upgrading your is it guild gate to a shivan reef. You know, shivan reef is, I don't know, 50 cents probably. You can probably find it lying around. Like, your, your friends probably have them and, you know, don't need them. I don't know. And so, finding ways. To upgrade your land base, obviously, if you can afford vetches and the shocks and those sort of things, I mean, that's, those are great. They're expensive for a reason. Yeah, so upgrading your land base from lands that enters into play tapped to lands that don't enter into play tapped. That it just it just makes a huge difference. I've noticed uh, I've, I've upgraded one or two of my decks 
to a much more functional mana base. And so I go back and I play some of my decks that I haven't done that with because I can't afford it. And it just it just feels so much slower. It really does. But it doesn't mean it's not fun. It's just, you know, it's just one of those things that I haven't been able to do it and that's okay. But the other thing would be a lot of times, at least I, I know when I'm building a deck, I typically build my deck in one of two ways. I'm either building it around my commander. The commander typically has some kind of ability or something that inspires me. And it's like, oh, hey, I really want to do this one real cool thing. It's Mizzix of the Ismagnus. I want to cast all of the red and blue X spells for nothing. You know, I want to have the worthy. I want to play Minotaur Tribal. You know, I want to do whatever. And so um, there are two ways that I, do, that I build decks. Um, either being inspired by the commander or there's a particular card interaction that is, that is kind of fun. For example, Cabal Stronghold and Torment of Hailfire or Azor's Gateway and any gigantic spell you know and so if that is why you're building the deck and that is what is you're trying to do then building ways to be able to be able to consistently do that you know you'll you'll get more enjoyment out of the deck if you're able to do that so that things that's things like tutors uh, yeah i mean you're really just tutors and those are honestly they're kind of boring to build uh they're mean they're boring to get but um they're they're help they're helpful and they help you in and they're good <laughs> No, that all makes sense, and I can definitely kind of agree, especially with all of the four-color commanders and stuff that are running around nowadays, making sure that you can actually cast your cards by yeah. having a fleshed-out mana base is really important. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to be able to like have all these cool cards in hand and not be able to play anyone. You want to be able to play Magic, you know, if you have you know, four and five. Yeah, when you're playing with four and five colors especially, you have to have... You have to know a little bit of how to build a mana base. And you can do it on a budget. And I, I was it. I wrote a deck about, I mean, an article about the Dragon deck, the new, the one, the Ur Dragon. And I love that deck. I actually built that deck myself. It's like a legendary dra- Dragon Tribal. It's not good necessarily, but it's 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 an absolute blast. But I built it with Maze's End, and so Maze's End. Not only is it a janky win condition, but it also you end up building the deck in a way that you have. Some, some decent mana fix and you have some lands are going to help you get all the colors that you need and allows you to play magic, you know, because no one wants to sit there and be, just be color screwed. Uh, Absolutely. That's, that's no fun. Yeah. No, I, I remember uh, when we went to GP Oklahoma City together, you kind of put the finishing touches on your, your mana base for Brea and just how much more functional it was from point A to point B once you yeah. finally got, got it fully fetched and shocked out. Um, yeah, I mean, it was marketably different just because you had all the colors when you needed them. And it was you, you were pretty proud of that in general just because you had gotten your big boy mana base. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was kind of fun. It was, it, 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 it was like, it was an exciting, like, oh, I, you know, I was able to have those things because I had never been able to. So, yeah, I was just smart trading and, and not being an idiot, I guess. I don't know. Even then, like those, the, <laughs> yeah. right. so those those lands can perhaps speed up and make things more efficient. But even then, like it does sound like the previous mana base that you had still allowed you to play magic, which yeah, is definitely still, yeah, point. exactly. And I was still so that's a definitely to. good place to park. You know, if you are looking, that's a good first place to start. You know, building up once you've established your budget deck. But 100%. if you don't have them, you can still play Magic. So it's yeah, you can still play. Good. Yeah, and that's one of those things. If you don't have the money, like it's okay. You can still play. You can still play. Like I mean, I play. I've played for however many years. I just like Matt was saying recently that I was able to actually 
you know, get a, you know, quote unquote decent mana base. But I still, I still competitive. I still, I still beat hit. I still won plenty of games, you know, with Brea. Mm -hmm. You never beat me. You never beat Uh, me. I don't agree with that, but that's okay. (laughs) I'm inclined to believe the guy with the gather specimens on this one. I don't know. So, Andrew, you've also thrown together uh, a top 10 cards of 2017 in your article series. And you kind of initiated this yourself and you got all of the writers on EDH rec to participate and it was a really fun exercise for us all to put together what are our top 2017 cards I'm kind of hoping that you'll do it again for 2018 and I'm just curious if you have any ideas lined up for your top 10 cards oh, of 2018 man. so far are there any front runners yeah definitely so so when I'm looking at those when I, when I did that originally uh it was you know it was picking from things that weren't reprint sets so none of the master sets and so in this case, I wouldn't, wouldn't pick anything necessarily from Masters 25, uh, even though there are, God, there are so many good, good, so many good commander cards in that, in that set. I know it wasn't well received, but God, there are so many good cards. Um, anyway, but so you'd be looking at Rivals of Ixalan, Dominaria, and Battle Bond, and soon to be Core, Core Set 2019. And we just got some spoilers for those today, which whew, looks sweet. But anyway, so. Uh, from Rivals, uh, some of my favorites were Slaughter the Strong. It's been incredible for me. It, that That's a definite budget card. It's a three-mana board wipe. Uh, it's a sorcery. It's Each player picks uh, creatures that, that basically where their power e- e- uh, adds up and equals four, and it sacrifices everything else. And so uh, you can if you build your deck around it uh, and build it the right way, you can just blow people out. Um, that's one I play in my Mathis deck, my that, that curses deck, because he's typically one of the only creature I have on the board. He, he has three power, and so it basically ends up being, uh, you know, almost a plague wind uh, for everybody else for three mana, no less. That's been sweet. Right, your opponents get to keep like a beast within token or a swan song exactly. token, but they have to lose even their indestructible creatures because they right. just get sacrificed. That's definitely a neat card. Yeah, so yeah, even doesn't matter if they're shroud or indestructible or anything, it just just they all die. It's wonderful. Twilight Prophet is sweet. God, I love that card. It's not budget, but it's super super fun. Azor's Gateway is just like the most the EDHist EDH card of all time. Just being able that, that flipping that thing over and being able to tap it for you know forty mana or whatever at a time is great. The Mirari Mar- Conjecture, the new saga from Dominaria. It it lets you get it lets you recur instance and sorceries and then copy all your instance and sorceries that just uh, i love it um and is it mage at heart so it's pretty perfect yagmath's vile offering is just is a great card you know you get to resurrect something reanimate something from somebody else's graveyard or your or your graveyard and then blow up a planeswalker or a creature um it's great pierre's whim i got pierre's whim uh, i got to play with over the weekend at a battle bond draft and that card is insane even in now obviously that was limited but uh, just the politics that you can do with the friend or foe mechanic i'm just really looking forward to and being able to make everybody else sacrifice an uh, enchantment or artifact and then be able to ramp yourself all for four mana is is just seems incredible and then play of the game the sith card um called it it cost it cost eight mana it cost eight mana yes but like I said, I'm in, I like the politics as a budget guy. The chances are real good that you're going to be able to talk somebody else into helping what? you out and pay that mana. And it exiles everything. It exiles everything. It's not even just creatures. It's like all those nasty enchantments and artifacts and planeswalkers. They all just 
Let's go. Oh man, come I'm, on. I'm gonna, this is, I'm gonna this go is on the record. That you bring that up. I'm gonna go on the record and say that Andrew and I did not converse about play of the game beforehand to get did him you, to did, say did, that. Did, did you? Matt and I had a bit of a debate about it on a previous episode. Oh, actually, did you guys because really? I think, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that it's gonna be an overplayed card. I don't think that it deserves the play that it's going to see because I feel like it's not gonna work. Yeah, but, but I, I can see that. I mean, I'm, Joey yeah. and Dana raked me over the coals, and I said I can't <laughs> count the times that I've wanted to exile the board, and there's some Joe Blow that's, you know, sitting down with his you know thousand dollar deck to everybody else's you know hundred, and he's you know running away with everything. And, you know, do that that first-to-worst type thing where two people gang up, blow them out of the water. That's what play of the game's going to do, and I'm glad somebody else is backing me up. Josh Lee Kwai, also, on the command zone, is a big fan of play of the game. Yeah, it's... Like, I, I, I totally get why you guys... Like, like, why people would say it could be overplayed. Because there are times it will end up just rotting in your hand, and you're not going to be able to get people to do it, because maybe you're the only person behind... But typically, man, there's going to be somebody you can be like, hey, they are going to win this turn because they have, you know, a Paradox Engine on board or whatever giant Aldrazi spaghetti monster things that are getting ready to, you know, beat everybody's face in. And, oh gosh, so you're going to be able to have people help you pay. I don't know. So, yeah, there are some times that it will, that it will, it won't work. But, man, yeah, I think, I think, I think, I think that'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I wanted to ask about, uh, sort of a, another cool twist on your articles that you'd done recently, was actually that, Andrew, you and Matt recently swapped your article series <laughs> for one episode. It we was did. really cool. He wrote an ultra-budget article, and you wrote a 60 to 100 article. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Oh, yeah, that was actually really, really fun. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was, uh, Matt and I had kind of, we had just kind of, when we were hanging out one day, and we were like, we should switch articles. That'd be really fun. Just to just to see, you know, try try what the other person was doing. Uh, it was it was a trip. It was really really good. Matt, I thought did a great job with his ultra budget one. It was Valduck Keeper of the Flame, and he was that that card got him all hot and bothered. Um, that to, card to, did to put to put it lightly. Uh, he was real <laughs> excited. It's it's a sweet deck. So I thought he did an awesome job with it. So if you got you know if anybody listening hasn't you know, hasn't read it yet and is interested in ultra budget, ultra budget things, all that stuff costing under a dollar, definitely go check it out. Uh, for mine, as I mentioned before, I don't play modern much or real competitive stuff. I basically play ADH only. And then I play limited, like, you know, I play pre-release typically most pre-releases and I might draft something once, but every once in a great while I have like a, I have a modern deck, modern deck, like thrown together that I can play. Uh, and back Back when I played a little bit more often, uh, one of my favorite decks was Taking Turns. And so I decided that I'd make a Taking Turns deck because that it just felt like it was the exact opposite of mo- the magic that I normally play. And it's just a bunch of expensive cards that I never get to build with, quite frankly. And so it was kind of freeing. It was, it was fun. It was fun to be able to look at, look at cards and say, I, I, I can just, I can pick whatever I want. I don't need to... You know, I don't have to filter anything. I don't have to uh, just if I want to play it, I can, I can, I can, I can build with it. And so that that was really fun. And I thought I thought the deck ended up being pretty okay. It was Azor the Lawbringer, which uh, is a sweet card anyway. It's just being able to Sphinx have a Sphinx's Revelation on a stick on a on a giant Sphinxy beater is, is is pretty fun. And so being able to play that control stuff that's something that it's kind of difficult to play typically as a traditional control deck. 
a Draco control deck, you don't get to play a lot of those kind of cards building on a budget. And, you know, with the Zard Lawbringer, I was able to, uh, I was able to play, you know, Cryptic Command. God, I love that card. It's one of my favorite <laughs> cards. If there, if I could pick a single card to cost under a dollar, just, just, just because it'd probably be Cryptic Command because, uh, that, that's like my heart song. I love that song. I love that card so much. You know, things like that. And I was able to play with a bunch of, you know, just, just really kind of get to stretch out a little bit and, let it breathe. It was fun. Yeah, very nice. Matt, how did it feel when you were writing the Ultra Budget article? Did you feel constrained by your budget? For that deck, I didn't actually. And kind of like what Andrew talked about a little bit, just with the mana base. So with Valduck being mono red, it wasn't actually too bad. And one of the fun parts about it, when I was building the deck, and then you know, in the, the first, I would say, week or so that people had been, been putting Valduck decks up online, they were finding a lot of really cool stuff. You know, mob mentality, one of those cards that I talked about a few weeks ago. The card's sweet. <laughs> uh, Betrothed of Fire and, like, all these really cool yes. things. They just happen to be, you know, dirt cheap, like crystal chimes even. So, you know, I, I play all my auras and, you know, Dragon Mantle, which is a card that I played back in standard in heroic decks. Another deck that, Andrew, we casually yeah. played against each other. Yeah, like, crystal chimes got all my auras back and I could replay all my cheap auras again. So for Valduk, it actually wasn't really too bad. There are a few cards that I wanted to put in there that end up being like $2 because I wanted to play Goblin Bombardment and stuff like that. So I definitely came across the sack outlet problem where even stuff that I thought was sub a dollar for the longest time, like Blasting Station, magically is $4 all of a sudden. And so I couldn't right? play. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't play some of those really cool sack outlets like that I wanted to play, but still found a way to do it. But yeah, no, it, it wasn't really too bad. Just being mono red was the easiest part, and then finding all these random, really cool cards that people didn't like. You know, sure, it, like I don't get to play Sword of Fire and Ice, and you know all those types of things. Or Sword of the Animus actually was the was the equipment that I think I wanted the most that I couldn't play because I wanted you know some rampant mono red. But other than that, it was a lot of fun. Just and and, and I kind of talked about it before too. Is you know, I, I like building around a specific theme, so if I'm trying to be fairly budget, it doesn't bother me that much. I can keep that mindset and, you know, really keep it going throughout the entire deck building process. If I wanted to get crazy with it and play all the expensive equipments, I could have, but knowing I was going in wanting to build a pretty budget deck, it, it wasn't too bad, but it was a lot of fun. And like Andrew said, yeah, we just talked about, hey, you know, sometime we should swap articles, and we talked about it for probably six months or so before we actually did it but you know we finally got there and it was it was a good time nice i'm really pleased with the result too and listeners you should definitely check out these ultra budget brew articles because they can really teach you a couple of neat tricks and show you that you know just because you don't have fetch lands or something doesn't mean that you're going to straggle behind in the game it's a really enlightening series so definitely definitely recommend it let's move on now to our head-to-head -head segment where each person is going to choose two similar-ish cards and have the others guess which one is more popular according to the data on edh rec i'm actually going to start off this one and it's kind of funny uh one of the favorite cards andrew that you mentioned was read the bones and that is one of the cards for my head-to-head -head this week Read the Bones, as you mentioned, is a three-mana black spell, sorcery, that lets you scry two, pay two life, and also then draw two cards. So you can sort of filter, get some nice cards out in, out in there. It's a really nice budget card. 
I'm wondering if you can tell me whether that is more or less popular than Sign in Blood, which is a two-mana black spell for simply black-black that says target player draws two cards and loses two life. So it's one less mana, but it doesn't have the scry. Which one do you guys think is more popular? Sign in Blood is double black, correct? Whereas Read the Bones is just two and a black. This is one. Exactly. Hmm... I know sign. I think sign and blood has been printed a bunch more times. Read the bones is kind of the more recent one, though. I I believe. I think isn't sign and blood also that you can target its target player? Yeah, it is. And so it has that it like is. niche case where you can, you know, burn somebody out of the game for you know make them lose the last two life or whatever. Oh, that's that's so fun to do. Anyways, oh man, I think that read the bones. I think that read the bones should be more popular, but I think that's. Sign and Blood will be more popular. Matt, what are your thoughts? I think read the I think read the bones was also in a precon, and so just Ooh, to, was it? To, to to yeah to play an out. Mm. Um, I'm gonna go with with read the bones, and Matt like not to date myself or anything. We say that Theros was pretty recently. Theros was like five years ago now or something. <laughs> oh lord, are you that's when that that card was first released? Yeah, that was mm-hmm. oh my gosh. Man, okay. I'm just gonna I'm gonna stick with my guns. I'm gonna say sign and blood. It just it's in so many stinging corsets, and I don't know. It's just one of those cards I feel like everybody has. Granted, read the bones probably the same way. And it's a precon. Okay, whatever. I'm sticking. Well, with it. I think that you'll be happy then, Andrew, because read the bones is in fact more popular. That's okay. I, I feel I, <laughs> I'm wrong, but you know what? I'm I'm happy being wrong because that card is is I think just better. I, I was expecting you to when you said read the bones. I was expecting to hear about it. Uh, against Phyrexian Arena. That was my first thought. I was like, ooh, that'll be interesting. But Phyrexian Arena is a card that I do want to talk about, but not right now. Fair On enough. a future show, I think Fair. there's a couple of things to unpack with Phyrexian Arena. Sure, sure. It's a really good card, but I don't know. I don't want to give away too much now. 100%. But we do got to keep moving, so I'll just give the numbers real quick on Read the Bones. It's showing up in 12,016 decks so far, whereas Sign and Blood is showing up in 7,794. So nearly twice as popular for the Read the Bones, mm-hmm. which is a good sign, because as you mentioned, I, I think that the not having double black mana symbols and also that extra scry too, those are really, really good. So it's nice to see that people are... You know, using using that to their advantage. And they're mm-hmm. I think they're making the right choice here. Andrew, what's your head to head? My head to head is oh man, it's the uh duel of the blue exile spells. I have Curse of the Swine and Reality Shift. So Curse of the Swine is blue blue and X, uh sorcery. It's so you whatever X is, you can pick X target creatures and turn them exile them and turn them into uh two two green boars and then reality shift is one in a blue and it's an instant and you exile target creature and that the controller manifests the top spell or top card of the library and right so, and manifest means that it becomes a two two colorless creature and if it is a creature the face down card that they've manifested then they can pay the mana cost and flip it over that yes. is that manifest yes I yeah, yeah exactly a, su- right. a, a morph only different Right. Right, right. Megamorph. <laughs> Between... <laughs> we Not won't one. talk about Not Megamorph. <laughs> Between Reality Shift and Curse of the Swine, I think I'm going to have to give it to Curse of the Swine. I personally like Reality Shift a little bit better. I've mentioned before in the podcast that I like my removal to be at instant speed because I like the versatility that that offers. But Curse of the Swine can hit more targets, which is pretty cool. So I think I'm going to lean in more in that direction. 
I'm going to agree with you, Joey. Uh, I, I think Curse of the Swine, just giving Blue access to take out just a multitude of threats, and and it isn't Cyclonic Rift, to be specific. Um, I, I'm going to go with Curse of the Swine. Well, actually, it is Reality Shift, surprisingly. Um, really? Yeah, it was. So, Reality Shift was in 10,202 decks, and Curse of the Swine is in 9,553 decks. Um, right. I was kind of surprised, actually. Uh, Curse of the... I mean, I, I think that's one of those things that people, they typically, if you have a uncommon and a rare, they're just kind of... I mean, at least I do. I, when I see young people, you know, like like the kids I was talking about earlier, like if they have an uncommon or a rare, you know, they're gonna they're gonna pick the rare every time. It could be the exact same card, but they're like, it's cool because it has a gold symbol. You know? <laughs> it just it just I don't know if there's something something to that. But uh yeah. Reality shift is I think reality shift is I don't I hesitate to say better because they're just different. But no, I was gonna say we also have a buddy who when reality shift first was spoiled, he bought a stack of them because he was convinced <laughs> that they were going to be like a three, four dollar card. So he bought a whole bunch at like 50, 75 cents or whatever. And then that just never happened. Cause I mean, to be, to be fair, it's a pretty unique effect. You know, you can exile a worm coil engine in mono blue and they don't get their, their two tokens. So it's unique, but it was just kind of funny. He was really convinced it was going to be, you know, like a, 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 almost a $5 card and bought a whole bunch of them. Hashtag Sorry. MTG Finance. Sorry, Murphy. <laughs> we, we love you. <laughs> but yeah. okay. So Matt, how about your head-to-head this week? So my head-to-head this week, I got some uh, some draw engines for green decks. The uh, mm. first one is going to be Garrick's Pack Leader. It's four and a green for a 4-4 four, four creature that reads, Whenever another creature with power three or greater enters the battlefield under your control, you may draw a card. And then I have Elemental Bond, which is an enchantment for two and a green. That says the exact same thing. Whenever a creature <laughs> with power three or greater enters the battlefield under your control, you may draw a card. Which do oh, you think man. is played more? I hope it's mm. Elemental Bond. Ele- I hope so too. It's oh, it costs what two less, and two it's less. much more difficult to kill. Like I play Elemental Bonds in decks. I play it, and it's and it's oh, it's great when I get it and I stick it. I had a Sequoia deck for the longest time. Whew. And that thing, oh man, because like he creates three ones. Oh god, he's great. Anyways, yeah, I, I great really hope Omnath as well. Yeah, so Matt, uh, we're both thinking Elemental Bond. Are we right? You both are correct after all. Yeah, so nice job. Uh, so Elemental <laughs> Elemental Bond is in fifty six hundred thirteen decks. Garrick's Pack Leader thirty three hundred eighty three decks. That's still a pretty respectable amount. Yeah, that seems low. That seems low for Elemental Bond. Yeah, I thought the same too. Especially when you think about all like. You know your uh, your angry Omnath decks. Who you play oh a gosh, land, yeah. you draw a card. Mm-hmm. You ramp a spell, you draw two cards. Like it does a lot of real dirty things. I I was actually thinking about comparing it to Zendikar's Royal, but wasn't quite there. But yeah, Elemental Bond in a lot of decks, just green in general, just happens to be really good. So yeah, yeah. There's a lot of incidentally big creatures. I think Elemental Bond itself actually came in the Draconic Domination pre-constructed deck. And it puts in a lot of work there, too. Oh, man, it it's does. True. <laughs> so as long as we've got Andrew on our show talking about ultra-budget brews and stuff like that, we also want to direct our attention really quick to the budget theme selection feature on EDH Rec. This is, I, I was about to say pretty recent, but it's actually been several months since we uh, got this feature on the website. And it's a really cool 
filter to find budget cards within decks. As you probably know, sort of to the right of the pie chart, there is a theme selection tool on EDHREC, and you can use this to find all different types of stuff and filter down to find the decks that are specifically more catered to the strategy that you might want to prefer. For example, on Atraxa, you can use that theme selection to find decks that are mostly with super friends, you've got a bunch of planeswalkers, or decks that have a lot of plus one counters, or maybe an Atraxa deck that usually uses a lot more minus one counters or things like that. Among the theme selections, though, there's also two options, budget expensive and budget cheap. And what these filters do, it's really clever, actually. They show you the top 10% of decks that we have in our database that are very, very expensive, the you know, least budget friendly of the decks, but then there's also that budget cheap option that you can choose, and that will show you the 10% of decks that are the cheapest among the data that we have. And this is a really, really neat feature to try and find cards that don't cost a whole lot, because you're looking at, you know, the cards that people tend to be using, but that aren't going to break the bank. They're not going to destroy your wallet to do it. Andrew, have you used this feature at all? Yeah, I have actually. It's uh, something I've messed around a little bit. Um, when I'm, you know, writing my articles and I'm very first brewing the decks, you know, for the very first thing I typically do is I'll kind of, uh, I'll just get on the whatever commander I'm building around, get on their EDHR page, and I scroll through and just see some of the things that some of the cards that are typically played, some of the cards that that are in my budget and cards that are outside of my budget. And a lot of times, especially when you're getting far closer to the bottom, you'll be able to you'll be able to see stuff that that's pretty interesting. Might pique your interest, but something that can kind of make it where you can skip the part where you you look longingly at the uh, you know five and ten dollar cards. Uh, you can just click the uh, you can click that, and it kind of does part of that work for you, which can be which can be nice and can make it a little make it a little faster. And so if you really know that hey, I'd really I'm morally looking to build a pretty cheap deck. I only have, you know, 40 bucks or, you know, however much money you might have. Uh, that can be something that is helpful, just clicking on that and, you know, it, it can be pretty helpful, yeah. I know. So something that's really useful about that, and this isn't something that I necessarily thought of a whole lot, but once the feature was put into EDHREC, I realized when you're looking at an EDHREC page for any given commander, some of those expensive cards are next to cheap cards. And as you mentioned, you'll look longingly at some of the expensive cards. But what you might not realize is that some of those cheap cards are only good because they synergize with some of the other expensive cards. So using that budget filter can actually help filter out the noise, as Jason Alt likes to call it, so that you're seeing cards that are there kind of because they should be and not because they're synergizing with expensive cards that you can't afford. So that's another really neat feature for it, too. It's kind of nice to have it there, like... Because prices, frankly, can kind of skew with our statistics a little bit. You can look at the statistics for Swords to Plowshares versus Path to Exile, which probably could have been a head-to-head, -head, actually. And you can see that one of them is more popular because it's more affordable. So we can get our hands on that one more easily. No wonder it shows up in more decks. Also, probably one of the questions that people are asking about this feature is, why the bottom 10% or the top 10%? Why not have a theme selection filter for budgets that has a price threshold? For example, decks under $50 total or decks under $100, etc. Stuff that, like that. 
And that idea was initially attempted when Dawn was creating this particular feature, but it unfortunately didn't work out very well by setting a limit to see only decks with a total price of like 50 or below or 100 or below or $500 or more for the expensive side. It actually skewed the numbers a bit too much, especially for five color decks that had very expensive mana bases. If, for example, you're trying to build an Atraxa Praetor's Voice deck, she's like 20 bucks or something right now. So if you're looking at a price threshold of $50, she's consuming half of that budget on her own. So it just it's a little better to have the cheapest 10% and the most expensive 10% to get a nice range for each commander so you can still have accurate data. Yeah, like Joey said, when we when we were going through the test runs on that, you know, we saw, you know, the top 10% or the top X dollars it was always because, you know, the blue-black deck was running an underground C, and the rest of the deck, you know, didn't really tell us a whole lot unique. So in order just to get the most unique and diverse results, we had to, to, to set it by X percentage instead of a, a flat dollar amount. Right. One thing that I also personally really like doing when I use these budget filters is to see if there are cards that overlap for both budget and expensive decks. And I think that's a really useful tip as well. If you look on uh, you know, the budget theme filter, things like that, and you see cards that don't cost a whole lot, and then you look at the expensive decks and you see cards that don't cost a whole lot that can signal to you that like both competitive players who are spending a bunch of money on their decks and people who are playing more casually and on a budget they both agree that these are really good cards for that particular deck so you should probably be paying attention to those that's a really good tip that i like when using those filters Mm -hmm. anytime you can get uh, a budget player and a non-budget player or a competitive and a non-competitive player to have any kind of consensus that's probably saying something for sure I say one thing that I always thought was kind of interesting was we were looking at Joey's beloved Marin decks and uh, <laughs> the 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 budget versions the bottom ten percent they all played Viridian Zealot whereas the top ten percent the expensive versions Viridian Zealot did not show up at all but Caustic Caterpillar did whereas Caustic Caterpillar didn't show up on the on the budget versions when they're essentially for for you know this this example they're the same card but they were exclusive to the the expensive and the cheap filters, which I thought was kind of interesting. Weird. Right. You do get a lot of very bizarre data points like that. And one last tip that I would like to sort of send out to people about using that budget filter is that, you know, you can look at some of the top and signature cards that are right there at the top of the EDH rec page for any given commander. But you, I would invite people to look a lot farther past when they're using one of these filters. Look farther down, even if something's only showing up at like 20% popularity or 19% or like, you know, 10% sometimes, those I would still give more weight to than thinking, oh, it's only 10% good or something like that. Because you've used a filter that is very specifically catering to the style that you would like to play, which means there's a lot less noise on the page. So everything that you're seeing is a lot more important. And I don't rely too much on like, oh, it's only showing it like, you know, 13% for this card here. It still is actually more specifically curated to your strategy with that filter. So don't discount things just because they're lower on the page when using those filters. That's a, a tip that I found is, is pretty, pretty helpful. Agreed. Definitely. Alrighty, last up, we're going to challenge some statistics and I'm going to start this one off too. It's a little fortuitous that you mentioned the sacrifice outlets at the beginning of the show, actually, Andrew, because the challenge the stats pick that I've got this week is a card called Spawning Pit. This is one that I found from that Asmira article that you wrote that I mentioned earlier in the show as well. Spawning Pit is a two-mana artifact that says sacrifice a creature to put a charge counter on it. Then you can also pay one mana 
and remove two charge counters from Spawning Pit to put a 2-2 colorless spawn artifact creature token onto the battlefield. This is probably a little innocuous when you first read it, but man, has it been really good for me. It's a sacrifice outlet, and as we've mentioned on this podcast, on some previous ones, having a sacrifice outlet, whether you're throwing your tokens from Valduk there, or you're throwing your elemental Omnath tokens there, or in my particular case, I'm using it in my Rayhan and Ishai deck, where I want a sacrifice outlet so that Rayhan can shift counters from one creature to another, having this sacrifice outlet that is colorless and that is an artifact, which therefore means that it's probably going to stay around for a while, that has been such a boon. But it's only showing up in 2,122 decks. It's like 79 cents or something, so it fits perfectly within your ultra-budget articles. And ever since I saw it, I've been like, whoa, this is really, really good. I'd normally been using Viseraseer, a one-mana black creature that is a sacrifice outlet to scry, and it's really good. But it's like $1.79, and it's a creature, which means if it gets removed, I've lost my sacrifice outlet. Matt, also earlier in the show, you mentioned Goblin Bombardment, and I think you said it was around $2 or something, but Mm -hmm. it's gone up since then. It's nearly a $5 card now. So Spawning Pit is an excellent budget card that is a sacrifice outlet that you you can just keep it around. And even if you don't ever make those 2-2 colorless spawn artifact creatures... Like, it's nice to have the option, but we've said before that, like, just having a sacrifice outlet can do so much for you in a deck. And, yeah, I just, I've got to recommend this card. I can't believe it's only seeing play in 2,000 decks. So, Andrew, thank you so much for writing that article and pointing me towards this card, because it's really nice. It's helped me out a lot to have a, a sacrifice outlet that will stick around more than my Viserys here. Yeah, definitely. It's, oh my goodness, it's so good. And that's something that, it just seems so counterintuitive. Uh, if you first start playing, you first start playing EDH and just Magic in general, like, oh yeah, killing my own things. Like that's something I don't want to do. That doesn't make any sense, but it's so important. Like it's just to have that outlet for free that you don't have to pay any mana is just yeah, it's great. Right. To make sure that people don't steal your stuff or exile it exactly. when maybe you would have preferred to return it from the graveyard, stuff like that. It's definitely good. And this is a really nice colorless option that is under a dollar that can fit into any deck. So I definitely recommend that if people are looking for a cheap sacrifice outlet, they look at Spawning Pit. Andrew, what's your pick this week? My pick is Birds of Paradise. I think it is in too many decks. Hmm. Right. I here's the thing. I think it's one of those I think it's a card that it's a little expensive. It's uh, and it's a card that is cool. It's, it's one uh, mana. How is it too it's expensive? It's one mana. It makes okay too expensive. It's expensive money wise, not not mana wise. Yeah, it's like eight dollars. Right. It's just yeah, but it's one of those cards that like when you look at like it's like like a solemn simulacrum. It's a secure tribal. It's like you just put it in every deck. It's like if you're in the colors and you can, you put it in the deck. Because it's good and it makes any all those colors. But the thing of it is, is in most decks, if you have any kind of decent fixing, you don't need all the colors. If you're running a four or five color deck, yeah, fine, you can play it. That's a, I, I get it. And it's definitely, definitely can be better and can be worth it there. But it's only really good early. If you draw it, turn eight, turn nine, turn ten, it's woo, you know, you're, you're not going to be very happy to have drawn that as opposed to something else. It's so easily killed to zero one. It, it it dies to a light breeze. If somebody looks at it the wrong way, it just keels over as in your graveyard. Yeah, and so I just think it's in I think it's in way too many decks. It's a very popular card because it's a cool card and it's fun. But yeah, I, I I don't think it should see quite as much play as it does. 
Right. It's currently showing up in 28,695 packs. That's so many. That's a whole lot. That is so many. It's so many. many. It's definitely. Like, I, but as you mentioned, you could maybe run like a rampant growth or something, right. and that will yeah. fix your mana, and it will probably stick around longer than a creature. Yeah, people don't people don't like blown up lands. They're they're protected for, for whatever reason. So unless they get that guy playing an Armageddon, but that, that Birds, Birds of Paradise probably isn't going to help you much there anyhow. So. Some people just yeah. don't I, like... Some people just don't like playing the finer things in life. Matt, do you disagree with the birds pick? Um, no, I think I think people need to be more selective about their mana dorks. I just think that outside of Noble Hierarch, in you know, just because it excludes itself a little bit, Birds of Paradise is the best mana dork out there. I think Sylvan Karyatid is uh, a decent one too. But yeah, if if you're talking about mana dorks, I think you could do worse. You know, if people are playing Llanowar Elves or Absence Pilgrim or whatever, if they're if you're playing Elves of Deep Shadow, just unless you're playing a specifically Elves deck, play Birds of Paradise instead, because the the difference between the zero and the one power is very rarely going to be relevant, especially if your plan is you know, a Crater Hoof Behemoth or anything like that. So, uh, I don't think Birds of Paradise is underplayed. I think Mana Dorks in general, you can make the argument, are a little overplayed. Just Birds of Paradise is the best mana dork out there, I think. Right. But it, it is, I, I kind of, I don't know, I, I mentioned the spawning pit not having as much fragility as a creature, and that's that's really where the argument comes for me. It may be a meta-dependent thing, but in general, I don't think that Birds of Paradise is one of those, oh, I gotta have it kind of green cards. I think sometimes a rampant growth can get you there just as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it kind also kind of depends on, like you said, your meta a little bit. Like... I would like in like in a lot of groups that I play in, like I'd almost rather I'd rather have like a Somberwald Sage or something, you know, something that is it, it's not necessarily a turn one play, which in some metas a turn one play is super important. But if your meta is all everybody's just kind of playing, you know, just their first few turns are just setting up, they're not playing much on their first few turns, then you know, having something that's a little bit more explosive, that's a a little more of explosive of a mana dork might might be worth it. So I don't know. Yeah, speaking of explosions, Matt, what's your pick for challenging the stats? So my pick for challenging the stats is a budget pick, but I think it's actually overplayed for being a budget pick. <gasps> I know. Well, hear me out. Yeah. So, so Route is a card. It is three and two white for sorcery. Destroy all creatures they can't be regenerated. But you also, uh, you may cast Route as though it had flash if you pay two more to cast it. So you can pay five and two white, so a seven mana wrath, basically, just for creatures uh, at instant speed. I am not too keen on this. We talked about five mana wraths a couple weeks ago, which I am very big on. But route, I don't think, is one of those that you want to be playing. If you want the destroy all creatures, that's fine. Play Day of Judgment, stuff like that. But if you want a budget option that I think is a little underplayed, that's actually played a little bit less... Scroll down a little bit outside the top 50 where Route is at and go to Phyrexian Rebirth, which is a card that I think is going to be much better. It's also a budget option. It's uh, just under a dollar. Um, but Phyrexian Rebirth is four and two white. Destroy all creatures. Then you, just, then you create an XX horror artifact creature where X is the number of creatures destroyed this way. I think Phyrexian Rebirth should be played a little bit more and Route played a little bit less. So Route is played... Uh, in six decks, or in six percent, I'm sorry, of all white decks out there, it's the number fifty card overall for white uh, in six thousand five hundred and sixty-two decks. Whereas Phyrexian Rebirth is a thousand decks less; it's in fifty-five hundred decks. 
I think you should be swapping those two. I think Phyrexian Rebirth, if you want a, a Sorcery Speed Wrath, I think Phyrexian Rebirth is going to be much better than the possible upside for seven mana to get an Instant Speed Wrath. I can... Hmm. I mean, the the term that comes to my mind right now is Por que no los dos? But, <laughs> I mean, Phyrexian Arena... Not Arena, so sorry. Phyrexian Rebirth, that is a really spicy Wrath effect. Mm-hmm. I've seen that really demolish some people. You know, oh, is that Reese player making a bunch of tokens? Bam, now I've got a 100-100 horror creature. That's a really cool card. I have used Route. I use it in the Kaneos and Tiro group hug deck that I've mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. I, As I've said, with the reality shift even, I really enjoy the flexibility of instant speed. But... I don't know. When comparing those two cards specifically, I I can see an argument. I guess there's a uniqueness about an instant speed wrath that I really enjoy, but I can see your argument about how you say it is a a, a tid a tidbit like clunky. It's very clunky, yeah. And, and I I love five mana wraths. I love expensive wraths. Um, but I think route just what you're getting for the mana isn't really great. Yes, instant speed is unique, but how many games do you need that to really matter in order to not die or win? Um, it's going to be kind of corner Casey, whereas the sorcery speed is fine for a wrath effect. Getting that upside um, from rebirth, I think outweighs the corner cases of having to pay, you know, another man and go to seven mana for an instant speed route. Andrew, what do you think? I think that, um, man, Phyrexian rebirth is, is, is a pretty cool card. I, I do play a route, and I think in a deck or two, because I think that it's at its uh, at its worst. Its fail case essentially is like it's a five mana wrath, and that's that's something like obviously as even as a budget player, um, that's great. I mean, you know, you look at other cards that are five mana wraths, and you're happy to play them. Fumigate, and um, there are a few others. Tragic arrogance, which isn't a complete wrath. I just I just love that card, um, but. Being able to having that flexibility, I think, is nice. So if you are just fine on mana and you are able to hold it up, you can really blow somebody out because it's not really expected. Because um, when when you think of Raths, you think sorcery speed. You just do, um, unless you're playing Cyclonic Rift, I suppose, um, which you know obviously isn't a Wrath. But um, anyway, so I I think that it's I think that's still okay. I, I expected it to be in more decks, to be honest. I really did. I was kind of surprised it wasn't as few as it was. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm a fan of the card, uh, but I do see what you're saying, uh, that the upside of it isn't huge. Yeah, I don't know. I see what you're saying. I still right. like well, it. Well, and Matt has also had a pick earlier uh, on a previous episode where he was talking about Fumigate being such an excellent one, and I think really what he's trying to hammer home is that there are a lot of wrath effects that give you a significant upside and whether that's instant speed or creating a huge creature or gaining you life for each creature that's destroyed this way there are a lot of options that are all very clever that aren't seeing necessarily a whole ton of play and some of them are better than others and the stats on the website at the moment seem to bias more towards the ad populum people are more familiar with these cards those cards have a lot of clout and people are clinging to those and we should probably look more in the margins, even though Dana's not here, for <laughs> cards that, like... <laughs> we, we miss our Dana. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. For cards that are... They have an upside that people seem not to quite realize, or they're just less familiar with the card. And those are the types of things that we want to make sure that people are aware of, so that they can play them. Because 
I mean, we've discussed both Phyrexian Rebirth and Route, and those are both under a dollar. Those are excellent budget cards. You don't need a Wrath of God, which is like, what, four or eight bucks or something like that. Budget cards can certainly get the job done. Yeah, exactly. It's it, And even Day of Judgment is creeping up there a little bit. And Day of Judgment is the number two played Wrath because it's four mana. Um, and that's kind of what sparked that, you know, that original article by Dana. And then my point to continue off of that is you don't have to be you know, glued into four mana. Look in the higher mana curve, find that upside that you can find. Like even like planar cleansing or, you know, like what we talked about with uh, you know, my love Fate for play the game. Yeah. Any any of those things. Well, I think you're wrong about that one. <laughs> Cataclysm. All those fun things. Cataclysm, if you really want to have a have a good time, cast Cataclysm with a Tajik Blade of Legion out and just Oh Lord. God, it sucks. Oh man. Oh, so it's a good recipe. You, it's Andrew, spicy. Andrew, you're gather specimensing all of Matt's creatures, but he's destroying all of your stuff with cataclysms. Yeah, there's a long history here. You can't. There, there you, is, oh man. You can't my get very, to six mana when a four mana Armageddon is cast. Yeah, my, that's all I can fa- say. <laughs> the, the 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 my my the the way I can describe Matt's playstyle, he's obviously a bit of a spike. Um, not as much with EDH, but still is a spike. So when we very first started playing, I had like a super casual rats deck, and um, I had had like finagled it, and I had acquired a Maronauer. A Maronauer. It was just it was just this, I was so excited to play with this card. And so when I'm saying I'm playing a rats deck, I'm playing like ravenous rats and like crypt rats and like drain pipe vermin like not very good rats it was and not it was not relentless rats it's not relentless rats and so matt brought over a tuned black green rock deck and made sure any like i never once got to play with marinar like i i owned that card for probably six months and i played against him ceaselessly and he'd either thought seize it out of my hand or he'd abrupt decay it or he'd maelstrom pulse it as soon as it touched like i never once got to use it against him and i finally was just like i'm done i'm done i'm, I'm out like i i traded it away <laughs> and i was like i'm done with rats this is stupid well that's what you get for politicking the entire table to prevent him from getting more than two lands uh, well see that no see that was done in response to years <laughs> years of nonsense was, years of response sucks. to Phyrexian Obliterator and all those good, good things. Mm-hmm. Yes, obviously. Well, anyways. Yeah. Well, the point <laughs> is that you... <laughs> you guys are ridiculous. Uh, the point is that just because you're playing on a budget doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice efficiency. Not at and all. there are a ton of really, really cool cards out there that you should definitely give a look to. So listeners... Definitely go check out the Ultra Budget Brews articles because Andrew's got a lot of great tips and a lot of really cool finds that will spice up your deck. And that even if they're cheap cards, that doesn't mean that they're bad cards. It's a really cool series. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. And with this, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank you both for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Andrew? Oh man, uh, I guess on Facebook I don't have Twitter, I don't have uh, anything like that, so I suppose you could uh, try to find me on Facebook or uh, on email, I guess. You can go to my go to my, my articles and comment on there and I'd be more than happy to talk to you. Absolutely. Matt? <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter, uh, M-A-T, or M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5, at Mathemus55. Shoot us an email to the EDHRECCast Gmail. 
I'll respond to you there or yeah, however you want to get a hold of me. Absolutely. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. You can follow EDHREC on Facebook and Twitter at EDHREC and the EDHREC subreddit if you have a question or possibly a request for a new site feature. Uh, P.S. If the EDHREC Facebook page gets 5,000 likes, there's going to be a giveaway. So head on over there and smash that like button for a chance at a cool price. Double P.S. We're also doing a giveaway for the EDHREC Cast Twitter page once we hit 1,000 followers. So make sure that you check out the EDHREC Cast on Twitter as well. Dana wasn't here with us this week, but you can check out his other podcast at cmdrcentral.libson.com. You can check us out at edhretcast.libson.com or contact us, as Matt mentioned, at edhretcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on iTunes, and if you do, please, please consider leaving us a review to help us boost our visibility and help other folks find the podcast. You can also find this podcast and more on EDHREC's very own community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other Commander content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with some more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Peace out, peasants. You should just do the whatever they do on the, you know, the lawyer commercials or whatever, where they do, blah, 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 and you just, like, fast-forward it. All of the extra... <laughs> Yeah. Follow EDH Rec on Facebook and Twitter, EDH Rec in the US subreddit. If you had a question, we're going to search for the next five years. Exactly.